Welcome to Medspectives, the podcast about healthcare professionals, the stories of their practice, and the diverse perspectives into the world around us. I'm your host, Arvind Rajan, and in today's episode, we're joined by Josh Morrison, the co-founder and president of One Day Sooner. One Day Sooner is an organization that advocates for people who want to participate in high-impact medical trials, and their work with COVID-19 challenge trials really came into the limelight this past year. In essence, a challenge trial is a clinical trial in which the participant is not only exposed to a treatment, i.e. vaccine or placebo, but is also directly exposed to the condition that is being tested, in this case, COVID-19. To some, the idea of voluntarily being exposed to COVID can sound absolutely insane, but about 40,000 people, myself included, volunteered to be participants of these challenge trials before we had our initial vaccines. The truth is, albeit risky, this kind of study can greatly speed up the time required for a clinical trial and ultimately save countless lives. Josh talks about his reasons for founding the organization, as well as the amazing progress they've made in pushing the frontier of challenge trials. With challenge trials already taking place in the UK, the future of them is exciting, and as Josh says, if they can speed up development of future vaccines even one day sooner, it would all be worth it. I hope you enjoy. Glad to have you here, Josh. Uh, I'm really excited to talk with you today. Challenge trials have been something that I found like really, really interesting, um, and COVID has just shown um, you know, how much of an impact these would have, and, and so I'm excited to talk with you about that today. Um, yeah, thanks for thanks for having me. I'm interested to to tell, chat about it too. For sure, for sure. And I, I guess I my curiosity for it really started. I think towards the end of it, I just had thought like, what if we just gave people COVID, right? I mean, it seems like it's kind of similar simple thing. Like, what if we just gave people COVID, gave people you know gave people the vaccine and gave other people a placebo and and just saw what happened what why can't we do that i'm sure people would would sign up for that and i think i like looked something up and then your organization one day sooner is what popped up and i i was so amazed by it i, I was just curious what is what is i guess your story of of founding the organization and beginning it so my background is um i'm a lawyer by training but um for the last six or so years before i started one day sooner um, I was running an organization called Waitlist Zero, aimed at um, ending the kidney transplant shortage. And um, specifically, you know, the goal of Waitlist Zero was to advocate on behalf of living organ donors uh, and to get benefits for donors like lost wages or health, lifetime, lifetime health insurance, things like that. So when uh, COVID started, you know, the one thing that happened is. Um, it, it really, my, my kidney work really slowed down, um, because, you know, politicians weren't very interested in, in mm -hmm. kidney donation. And the other side of it was, um, a friend of mine, uh, who's actually just made co-CEO of Open Philanthropy today, um, emailed me and said, Hey, there's this thing called challenge trials. Um, what do you think of this? Is this something you think you could be interested in working on? And so he sent me an article by, uh, Nir Eyal and Mark Lipsitch and Peter Smith about this idea of accelerating vaccine development by deliberately infecting people with COVID. And so I thought about it um, and you know, pretty quickly it was like, okay, well, I think this is a good idea because it's obviously risky, but the, the benefits could just be really enormous. And I also thought that, that I would wanna do this. I'd wanna to, um, you know, be in a challenge trial if, if I could. 
and that I thought my, my kidney work um, and advocacy background, you know, gave me the right ideas to, to pursue it. Um, and so that, that's what kind of got me started in the field. And I was connected to a few people in the effective altruist community to, to work on this together early on. Um, and so, you know, we really just kind of dove in and it was this, you know, really um, pretty in insane experience of not knowing anything about, you know, immunology, vaccinology or, or challenge studies when I started. And, and so really trying to, to very rapidly learn about the field and learn, well, OK, could these be useful because um, it sounds nice in theory, but how does this actually work in practice? And, you know, within a week we had uh, our first website, which was initially called, uh, it was initially called covidchallenge.org, and it was a one-page website, mm -hmm. which is basically identical to our sign-up form now. And maybe a week or two after that, um, we had the One Day Sooner site. Um, Rob Wiblin at 80,000 Hours um, shared uh, some information about our site on his Facebook. And uh, then I think Dylan Matthews at Vox uh, wrote a newsletter about it. Um, okay. And just from those two things, I think we had about a thousand people sign up yeah. within, you know, maybe a, a week or two of being started. Um, and then it was just kind of this sort of like rocket ship from from there of really being involved in the, the public discussion and, and kind of making the case um, for the preparation and utilization of these uh, these challenge studies for COVID. Right. And it's, it's crazy to see, like I, I was looking at the website now and it's like about 40,000 ish people have have filled out that form it's 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 insane to think about because i, I think I, I also read that ideally you need about like a hundred-ish people to run like a successful like a successful uh challenge trial and and we're like exceeding that by such a large amount that i mean it just makes so much sense yeah and i think you know one thing that really struck me was um you know now it's it's um not just that there are so many people but that it was such a diverse group uh, now from over 160 countries, I remember when we had maybe like a few thousand people mm -hmm. and I started looking at the, the spreadsheet and being like, okay, well, how many countries are, are, are there here? And, um, and it was like, it was like 50 already. It was like some, you know, very like, and I was just like totally blown away. And I was asking people like, oh, like guess how many countries do you think it is? People say like eight or 12 or something. Yeah. Um, and, and so that was, that was one moment that it, that really stuck out to me. Um, and yeah, and I think in, in, you know, on the one hand, I think it's unsurprising that a lot of people would be interested in in helping out humanity and and doing this. Um, but on the other hand, it's it's like I mean, just forty thousand, yeah, like you said, is is a really big number um, to kind of want to put themselves out there. And so that was um, really amazing. And then also, you know, seeing um, the reasons people gave for doing it that was really mm -hmm. moving and inspiring. Um, uh, so that, that that was very cool as well. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I was listening to um, another podcast actually about this and hearing their reasons, right? Like there was one person who was like, you know, there's a big chance that I'm going to get COVID anyways. And with like, instead of it just going to waste, you know, like me just getting COVID and, you know, having to get to get over it and, and hopefully recovering. What if I was to get it through this venue of, of a challenge trial where the results of my um, of COVID will you know, promote this, this vaccine. And I mean, different stories like that. It's just, it's just super interesting. Were there any in particular that stuck out to you? Um, there, well, there's one, um, that I still have on my, uh, on my wall. I have it printed out that it was someone who had, 
Um, and it wasn't very typical of our, our volunteers, but it was someone who had um, had a serious injury. It was a tractor trailer accident, and he had lost um, uh, mul- like multiple limbs actually. Uh, and he said that this, you know, would that, like doing this this study would um, would like give his life meaning, and it was something he wanted to do on behalf of his daughter. Um, and so that was one that that really stuck out. Um, but there, yeah, there there were all sorts. I mean, there were people who were in the military or were veterans. Um, who saw this as, as being similar. There were a lot of people who were interested in it from religious um, motivation. There were people who wanted to do it on behalf of their, their relatives or their, or their children. Um, yeah, there was, there was a lot of different motivations, um, and they were all kind of special in their own, in their own way. Right, right. And, and yeah, 40,000 different stories. That's, that's crazy to me. And it just... I mean, a lot, a lot of these people say it just, it makes sense. Right. And, and mm-hmm. there's also the, there's the also the other side of it where it's like, why would I voluntarily do something like that? Like, why would I put myself in, in that position of harm? But inevitably it's going to potentially be something that you, you might suffer from. And what kind of backlash, I guess, have you faced in your, um, in your time with One Day Sooner? Well, I would say I'm not sure if you use the word backlash. I, I you know, um, or maybe I'm being pedantic just to say disagreement. But yeah, disagree. you know, a lot of so so um, this was this would be you know uh, was was using a challenge study in a, a different context than you normally do um, in two ways. One, during a pandemic, trying to to roll these studies out quickly with a disease that we don't fully understand. Um, you know that that was definitely different. And two, the fact that it's, um, you know, potentially deadly and that we don't have a, um, a, a treatment that can reliably get rid of it. And so I think, you know, there were a lot of people who felt both that it was um, would be unethical for that reason. And particularly, I think there were a lot that thought, look, you know, in practice, it's going to take years to get this, this study together. Um, and as a result, it's not going to be, be useful. And I think that actually became kind of a self-fulfilling prophecy. Um, you know, there, there were scientists at the National Institutes of Health that were recommending these studies back in early March of 2020. And I think if we had started preparing then, you know, we could have known, um, you know, that these vaccines were effective over the summer of 2020. Um, but, you know, we, we only started preparation in about August. Um, and so by the time we were kind of ready to start start using the studies, we already had um, evidence of, of great effect, uh, efficacy for Pfizer and Moderna, which was obviously great news, um, but really then further delayed the, the implementation of, of these studies. Right. And, and I've heard that there's a study in the UK that started, um, started challenge trials. Uh, do you have any information on that? Yeah. So there are two studies, uh, two challenge studies right now with covid uh, in the UK, one is um, what is called a characterization or infectious dosing study uh, with people who have not been infected yet, uh, or in, in um, scientific parlance, what's called being seronegative. Their um, their seeming okay. negative for for SARS-CoV-2, and so that study was started in in March. Um, and the idea of that study is kind of two basic things. One is um, we can learn a lot scientifically about the way the disease progresses and about the immune response just in that, that initial study. And the goal of the study, too, is to um, identify a dose of the virus that will reliably cause something like 70 to 80% of people uh, to be infected. 
And that then is useful for, you know, if we want to now use this challenge model for um, vaccine development or developing or for antivirals and things like that, um, that's the goal. So that's what that first study was was doing. Um, and that's still ongoing, although my understanding is they do have the, the viral dose um, that would, uh, would, would induce infection. And then the other study that's happening at Oxford, which has just started a couple of weeks ago, uh, is a reinfection study. So it's um, studying people who've already been infected before. And what that study can teach us um, is, let's say also two things. One, um, or maybe three things. So one is, is kind of further how the immune response works if, when people have been infected before. Two is it can give us um, what are called correlates of protection, or in this case, correlates of immunity. So, you know, what does it look like when someone um, who's been previously infected uh, does not get uh, subs- infected again when they're challenged um, by, by an infectious mm-hmm. dose of SARS-CoV-2 versus who does get infected again, right? Because if you know that, one, that can help you design vaccines. It can also help you approve vaccines because you can show, oh, well, this vaccine... Um, creates a response that's that's you know usually protective, um, and the the final thing um, that it can do is it can also maybe make a model of infection that's safer and can be used more broadly than the zero negative model and the model of people who have not been infected yet. Um, so that can be helpful as well. So those are the two studies um, going on in the UK now. There's some interest in the Netherlands in also doing a study that would be um, aimed at understanding uh, vaccines and the correlates of protection, the correlates of when vaccines work versus when they don't work. Um, uh, but that's, I think, a little bit unlikely to, to start anytime soon. Um, and there probably will be, I think, subsequent studies in, in England as well, uh, possibly focused on um, antivirals. Um, so, mm. Gotcha. Yeah, it's just... It's really interesting to see too, like this is kind of like the kickstart, right? Like of these of these challenge trials in, in, in COVID. And I guess setting this kind of framework up right now with with um, these studies dur- during COVID will kind of propel it for the future and and prepare, you know, for other diseases that we're trying to fight as well. Um, set up kind of a model, like you said, with with the studies going on right now of how they can best do that, and and if something else happens. Um, yeah, exactly. And, and I think I think it is uh, a lesson for future pandemics um, because I think I think that it could have been used a lot better for COVID. But I also think there's a lot of preparation that needs to happen before the next time, so these can be really useful. Because I think having the capacity in place beforehand. And a, and a program to quickly um, produce challenge strains, produce the virus for challenge studies. And that way, you know, we can use it or not, we can decide, but it's not very expensive and it buys us a very valuable option. If we had started, you know, automatically back in January preparing this, this viral strain, then by March, we could have, all, you know, been, been starting these challenge studies and learning, you know, how does reinfection work? You know, can people be infected again? How does it spread? Um, you, know, you know, who's more, tra- uh, who transmits it more? And then also very quickly could have developed efficacy results for vaccines, you know, by maybe June of 2020, where we could have known, you know, among young healthy people, the Moderna vaccine or Pfizer vaccine is 95% plus effective, which would have been, you know, incredibly valuable information. It's not perfect. We wouldn't know among 70-year-old people um, that it, or, or with natural infection that it would be that effective. 
but it obviously would have would have helped us enormously um, if we had known that you know a year ago right and especially because like you had that second wave of cases after that and, and you would have kind of flattened that a lot more by knowing that information mm-hmm. prior to that so that's mm-hmm. that's amazing because I, I like one of the talks i remember you gave um the the reporter kept like kind of coming after he's like well it's only a month right josh like it's not like mm-hmm. gonna make a huge time difference but like the 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 month makes such a big like impact on the rest of the time after that right and it, it decreases the amount of cases in 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 the future yeah and that's why the the organization is is named one day sooner is because you know even a, a day is thousands of people's lives right um right. and it's not just you know and, and it's not just lives saved but it's also all the other collateral consequences of infections and, and of the pandemic in general and so it was like you know even if we went to all this trouble and we saved a day, you know, that that's an enormous gain. And I think that gain, you know, I think one thing that's interesting that we're thinking about, you know, um, as, as we look beyond the pandemic is that's kind of true for, for some other diseases as well. Um, when there's not, you know, there, there's some diseases like malaria um, mm-hmm. that, that cost thousands of lives a day that challenge studies are used widely for. Um, they were used broadly for the vaccine that's currently being deployed in Africa, that's called RTSS, which is about 30 to 50% effective, and um, the vaccine that, that Oxford is developing called, I think, RSS, um, that could even be 80% effective. But also, I think, um, you know, Helen McShane at Oxford uh, is running their reinfection COVID uh, study, but she also runs tuberculosis challenge studies um, with a very weakened form of tuberculosis, actually a tuberculosis vaccine. And I think that, you know, the same logic that applies to COVID challenge studies could also apply to, to giving people what's called the wild type bacterium of tuberculosis, the actual um, tuberculosis itself, um, because, you know, tuberculosis claims about 3,000 lives per day, about one in 70 people throughout the world. Uh, right, it's one of the like, highest rates, yeah. Um, so I think I think it could be used a lot more broadly. Or another researcher, um, Meta Rustenberg at Leiden University in the Netherlands, um, she's done uh, great work with a, a schistomyces challenge study. So schistomyces is um, uh, they're like tapeworms um, that are uh, endemic in a lot of poor countries, and they're not deadly, but they they are um, fairly serious and they're they're really quite common. Um, and they're particularly bad for, for children, and they can, can stunt children's growth and things like that. Um, and so she's developed a challenge model for um, for that that I think could also be really useful there for developing vaccines. That is, it's just exciting to see that future of it, I guess, like seeing how much of an impact of this. Do you see like yourself continuing with this project for, I guess, like years to come? Uh, I do, I do. I think I think there's a lot of value in in expanding the field of challenge studies and especially, you know, it's it's such an exciting time in vaccinology um, with the mRNA vaccines and it's with, with proving that we are better at developing vaccines and we really put resources into it than we've thought. And when you start thinking that way, it, it you know, I think it makes you realize, you know, for example, can we, uh, you know, get rid of the common cold or, or largely get rid of, you know, I, I wouldn't necessarily say get rid, rid, rid of all of it. But, you know, something like 80% of colds are caused by rhinoviruses, coronavirus, RSV, and flu. Um, and they're working on a universal coronavirus vaccine. You can do the same thing with, with rhinoviruses. And they're also working on a universal flu vaccine. And so I think using challenge studies 
um, to quickly uh, learn if a vaccine's effective and then redesign it because it's an mRNA vaccine and they're easy to, uh, to edit, I think that could, could be really transformative um, for a lot of these diseases and, and really um, push the frontier of vaccinology and of the, the fight against infectious diseases. So I do think it's a really um, exciting time for the field where there's a lot of uh, possibility. Yeah, and it's just that, like that. I guess what we also realize is is how much regulatory there is that mm-hmm. prolongs the process so much more than it, it did this year, right? Like the fact that we were able to pump, like get the vaccine out so quickly without you know challenge trials even being implemented yet, and then in the future where we're going to use this model, and then coupled with you know challenge trials and 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 develop like a very efficient way to create vaccines and and fight these diseases that that we can we can fight effectively with them yeah and i think it's um yeah it's, it's been so it's been so fascinating in that way that you know you have these mrna vaccines that were designed within days of getting the sequence um right. that are approved a long time later and you know i think that what we're seeing now with the fda with um the agicam decision about uh their alzheimer's drug um, mm. that to me seems like a bad decision that, that does not seem like it's likely to be effective. You know, it's, it's not, to me, the story is not just let's deregulate, um, the FDA and, and cause I think the FDA does need to be, um, uh, a strong enforcer of making sure that these things are effective. But I think there's a lot that can be done for preparation for future pandemics, um, so that we can move faster. And that also, you know, I think that we should really be thinking about, well, what does emergency, author- uh, emergency use authorization mean in a, va- in a vaccine or pandemic context, where I think it's, it's reasonable to say, you know, we have to be really slow and deliberate uh, before there's a full licensure and before everyone is, is getting a vaccine or people are required to get the vaccine. But I remember talking to Adrian Hill at Oxford um, back in, I think, August of 2020, and he said, look, you know, right now it's illegal. You know, I think that our vaccine is going to work. It generates an immune response. But right now it's illegal for me to for me to to get vaccinated right with with this vaccine. And I think that, um, you know, liberalizing in, in that direction of in, in certain cases, maybe for healthcare workers, maybe for, you know, younger populations when there has been efficacy proven in challenge studies. Um, I think there are uh, some avenues towards uh, improvement in, in, in those regulations. And I also just really would stress the importance of preparation um, and of thinking carefully about, you know, how we want to do better uh, in the next pandemic. Right. And I think that aspect of, of really thinking about this and reflecting about it is, is really important, right? Because, I mean, this idea of a challenge trial of just injecting someone with a, a virus in order to, you know, to develop vaccines is something that people people are scared of or like a lot of people are worried about it but when you think about the 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 the, the value of a sacrifice like that right and and you know it, of course any life lost is is terrible but then when you look about the lives lost every single day it's like the relative good coming out of it i feel like it it makes a world of difference um and i guess this frame of of thinking that we're going to start having to think about right as challenge trials become more popular as, as one day becomes you know more um is able to advocate about about challenge trials even more i i don't know it's just it's interesting to see where this train of thought and and 
I guess this this thinking among among the public as well is going to lead us. Yeah, and I think that one area for improvement that you know we hope to work on is how to include the research participant perspective um, in the scientific process. Because I think that, and, and that's what unites my work at Weight with Zero, representing kidney donors, with my work at One Day Sooner, representing challenge volunteers, um, is, is this idea that I, I think that um, the current system uh, tries to protect research participants in a fairly paternalistic way in that you're, you know, it's, it's people who aren't primarily research participants um, trying to design restrictions on research in order to meet the needs of research participants. And I think it's a more elegant solution to have collective representation of research participants ourselves, which is, is the goal of, of One Day Sooner. And I think that, you know, we're, we're starting with challenge studies because, you know, the ethical issues of infecting people deliberately are, are so obvious, and so it, it means that we right. need to hit a higher ethical goal. But I think I think that um, approach can be valuable for other research as well. And I think having research participants as active agents pushing forward um, the scientific process is going to yield better research um, and better medicine than the current system where um, they're kind of, or we're kind of sort of subaltern, subaltern or, or sort of uh, are sort of... Um, kind of silent people to be protected rather than partners um, in the system our, ourselves. And I think that's something that we we hope to improve on in the future. Right, right. And just advocate for people. What's What's been something that has challenged you with One Day Sooner over your your time, you know, being the co-founder of it and, and being the president of it? How has that, like, what, what challenges have you run into with it? And what has been like hard experiences with it? Yeah, that's a good question um, because there's certainly been been many of them, um, and I think some of them are you know some of them are personal about you know learning to manage a bigger organization and running a, a global organization and, and trying to understand you know these different cultures and different countries in which we operate. Um, so that's mm-hmm. been one set of challenges, but you know I think um, one challenge I would highlight is um, I, I, I had a couple of things. So, so one that's been interesting is the tension between, uh, in science between wanting to engage the public but being sort of afraid of the public or public scrutiny or public criticism. So I think the, mm-hmm. the World Health Organization, to give a concrete example, the World Health Organization in their ethical guidelines about COVID challenge studies said, you know, it's really important to engage the, the public and for the public to be to be part of this discussion. Um, and so we at One Day Sooner think, you know, oh, well, that's great, you know, because we're, we're you know, talking to the press about them, we're educating people about them. And in some sense, you know, even though we're, we're representing research participants, you know, that is sort of proxying for the public compared to, compared to scientists. Um, but the, you know, what we, we also found, you know, months later, um, you know, when the World Health Organization was meeting about challenge studies back in December, we said, hey, can we can we join this meeting? Um, and it was, you know, no, the, the public isn't isn't allowed into the meeting. Um, and I think the the issue there and we saw repeated examples of that where, you know, even our, our allies who we were, you know, also agreed with us on, on challenge studies and end up running challenge studies. I think once those studies um, were 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 happening, um, there was less transparency uh, and less inclusion of us than, than we would have liked. And I think where it comes from is that, 
you know, scientists are not, um, they're certainly not politicians, they're not the media, they're not public communicators by, by, by nature in terms of their core competency. And so in a lot of ways, you know, the like public, um, you know, public engagement is, sounds great on paper, but in practice, I think it can be a real, you know, I, I think it's feared as, oh, well, this, you know, our research is going to be sensationalized or the public's not going to understand, or the press isn't going to, is going to misportray this. Um, and so I think it's, it's kind of seen as all risk and no, and, and even though, you know, intellectually there's the benefit of engaging the public, in practice I think, it's, I think there's a, a challenge in, in doing that. And so I think that's something, um, you know, that, that we as a, as a civilization, I guess, or as a scientific community, need to, need to get better at or try to learn to um, adapt to a little bit. Um, so I think that's something that's that's a difficult challenge. Yeah, and I think that has been so evident right now because like if you look on social media, right, like you're having so many different sources of information and people commenting different things, people saying, oh, I, I looked at this article and, and got this out of it. And oh, I looked at this and got this out of it. And two people can look at the same thing and get different stuff out of it. And mm -hmm. it's like, it's good that it's accessible to them, but at the same time, it's like if the inter interpretation of it is is wrong, what are the consequences of that? And like you said, mm. like it is difficult, and and that is that is a scary part. And it's it's weird to see like how how I find that interesting that you said that you're not seen as the public, but then you are seen as as the public in the same way, um, mm. like in in reference to who, and this is wow. Yeah, and I think I think that something we've seen in this pandemic is this public communications issue in our, our public health system of um, oftentimes communicators um, go wrong by rather than just saying, you know, here's the facts of the situation as we know them and we're uncertain about X or we or whatever, and then you know, people can can make whatever decisions they want on the basis of those facts. I think that there's a desire to to, to tell the facts in a way that will motivate people to, to do the right public health outcome in a way that can ultimately be kind of misleading factually. Um, and, you know, I think that's a mistake. And I think it, I think it kind of infantilizes uh, the public a bit mm -hmm. and, and it ultimately reduces trust uh, in the system. You know, I, I think, you know, uh, the obvious example of that in the United States is, is the, the whole idea around masks and are masks useful or not. Um, or things like that. But, but I also think, um, you know, things around, for example, like reinfection, where a lot of times I think there's a desire to say, um, well, you know, we haven't proven, we don't, we don't have data yet that says, I mean, now obviously we do, but, but we did that, you know, a year ago or six months ago, you know, do we have data that say um, that if you've gotten infected before, you're, you're probably unlikely to be reinfected? Um, well, you know, it's, it's, we didn't have data to that effect, uh, but, you know, just on our background knowledge of coronaviruses and, you know, most diseases, um, we could have offered that, that guidance. And so I think that um, the public health system kind of needs to, to look in the mirror and think about its, its communication strategy and how to be um, reliable as information changes during, during a pandemic. Um, and, and the, you know, the, the other example of that I would give is the, um, the question around like, uh, first doses first and, you know, can, you know, should we be, be doing one dose or two? And I think the discussion around that also, um, 
you know, ended up, or, or like actually maybe a better example is like the Johnson & Johnson pause um, by the FDA. That was something that I think was based on, okay, well, you know, how is the public going to perceive this? What's the best way to communicate this? And I think a lot of these decisions are that are that are grounded in um, what is like what effect is this decision going to have on public perception? That question of well, what effect is it going to have is made in a very unscientific sort of anecdotal. Well, I kind of feel like if we don't take Johnson and Johnson off the market, people are going to think this. I think that those decisions mm. could be much more informed by by empirical reality, and that generally decision makers um, should be making them not guessing at well, what's the public reaction going to be? But instead saying, well, what's actually the right decision here? And then you can say, well, how am I going to explain this decision that's the, that, that I think is the right on the decision on the merits? Right. And because decisions like that make such a big impact on public perception in the future as well. Like it's kind of like mm-hmm. a self like propagating thing where, where someone's going to think something and then they, the authority does it. And then you're like, oh, so it is actually bad. And then mm-hmm. like, that's going to mm-hmm. stick. That's going to stick with you. Right. Um, but yeah, exactly. But I I really am excited for the future of public health. So like with having it thrown into a situation like this past year, I feel like we're going to come out of it with such a big focus on this part of healthcare. And and I'm not trying to jinx anything or anything, but I feel like, you know, whether it's in regards to infectious disease, whether it's in regards to social determinants of health and and other stuff, it's I just feel like we're going to focus a lot more on this preventative aspect of basically just preventing something terrible like this happening again regardless of what it is and Mm -hmm. you know i hope i hope that's the reality of it i hope that's where we're going and and you know advocacy organizations like like one day sooner i feel like will will help that you know with public perception and understanding is that of that yeah and i think that it's you know in a lot of ways the pandemic was a sort of stress test um of our Mm. public health and and biotech and and medical systems and you know i think that that has the advantage of both identifying places where where there could be improvements and things that didn't perform well and also you know places where you know performed beyond our our you know wildest uh, expectations and sort of showing like what's actually possible and so I think, you know, obviously the, you know, mRNA vaccination is, is, a, is you know, one really good example of that. Um, but I'm sure there are others as well. And I do think that uh, I am optimistic that that will lead to more um, growth in the future. You know, to me, the analogy is like, you know, the World War II war mobilization, um, where, you know, we were able to accomplish a lot um, from an industrial perspective in, in a way that really um, helped with, with growth uh, after that. Right. And and you, you mentioned the mRNA vaccines and, and man, I, I, I love the like it's just such an interesting concept, like at the at the base of it where you're just injecting the sequence that mm-hmm. you know, your body does the rest of the work and it makes so much mm-hmm. sense that they were able to do it so quickly. And mm-hmm. and the fact that this, you know, pandemic, as terrible as it was, served as such a a positive uh, I guess positive press for this technology and and it being potentially being implemented into other diseases and, and fighting other other diseases is just so exciting for me and and like the the cost of it and everything. So I I don't know. There's just so much I think good that's come out of such a, this such a such a terrible ter- a terrible year. Um, regardless of it, I I agree, and I also think that it's important that I think it's both important that we prepare for the the next potential pandemic. 
um, and don't let mm -hmm. these lessons go to waste. But I also think that in doing that preparation, we can uh, solve a lot and do a lot of work now. You know, so for example, I saw an article in Vox, um, I think it might have been by Seagal Samuel, um, about you know, the idea that we should be building a lot of mRNA uh, uh, production uh, capacity so that we can, if there is a future pandemic, um, can quickly deploy uh, vaccines and treatments. And, you know, building that can also help us with diseases in the, in the present day. And I think that, you know, some of the things that we're working on at One Day Sooner to identify places to do better on challenge studies and future pandemics also are going to be things that can be tested out today in existing diseases. You know, I mentioned things with a cold or, or with um, influenza. Um, and I, so I think, I think that is um, an opportunity that really needs to be taken um, because there, there's such a toll of an infectious disease. And I think we can really take a real swing at, at trying to uh, improve a lot of it. Yeah, definitely. Uh, and Josh, before we close out, I just wanted to ask you, you know, one final question. What is something, what is the mo the thing you're most excited for um, with One Day Sooner and, and with your future work towards it? Um, what am I most excited about for One Day Sooner? Uh, I would, so the two, so there, there are things I've talked about before. So the two things are one, mm. this idea of a sort of research participant union that, that um, expands scientific knowledge and, and having kind of a core of people who want to push things forward um, through self-experimentation. That's something that I think could be, could be really huge. And I think, you know, the ongoing um, like collection of, of data in a group like that, I think, I think there's a lot um, uh, that, that can be done. Um, so I guess I'll, I'll, I'll say that. I'll say the idea of, of mobilizing research participants to um, expand the frontier of science, I think has tremendous potential and is something I'm, I'm really uh, thrilled to be able to work on. Yeah, honestly, like, because it seems like that is the bottleneck at the end of the day, right? Like having um, a, a, a force of, of research participants that are, are treated well and um, able to participate in, in, these, in these studies. And I think that's going to change, you know, the field of science like for, for years to come. So again, thank you so much, Josh, for, for uh, your time today. I, I really appreciate you. And then thanks for talking. All right. Well, thanks so much for having me um, and have a great rest of the day. I hope you enjoyed listening to our conversation and thank you so much for listening. If you love Mitspectives, be sure to follow us on Spotify, drop us a review on Apple Podcasts, and share this podcast with your friends. It really helps us grow and I'd really appreciate it. Thank you so much and I'll see you next Monday.